Hi there, my name is Romana, and great that you are listening to Philosophy Explained. This podcast is focused on interesting philosophies, so you can find a true connection with yourself and the people around you. Are you ready to expand your vision on life and to be inspired? Then let's start. David Marks is an Australian man who grew up in the same way as many of us did. However, at the age of only 26, something made him decide to become a Buddhist monk. During the first episode of this three-piece interview, you will find out how and why an ordinary man chose to become a Buddhist monk and what his monastic life of 30 years was like. David shares his extraordinary story and the wisdom and the life lessons he obtained along the way. Also, he discusses challenges that many of us still experience nowadays and sheds light on why he thinks many of us feel more and more disconnected. This is a story of an Australian man who became a Buddhist monk. Could you tell me a bit more about your life before you uh, decided to be a monk? How were you raised in Australia and were you mm. uh, raised religious, spiritually? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, uh, I uh, you know, come from a, uh, what you might describe as just a, a fairly middle-class family, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I grew up not in a wealthy family, but by no means a poor family either. You know, I had everything that I wanted in a very, you know, simple way, comfortable way. Mm-hmm. Um, not religious. My parents were incredibly kind and decent people, but they weren't um, particularly spiritual in any way. So after high school, did you went to college? Uh, yes, we call college university. I went to university, university yeah. and I studied law. And okay. after uh, I took a little bit of extra time to do my law degree, but eventually I graduated um, with a law degree. Uh, I never really expected to practice law. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember telling my parents, even after of the first couple of years, I said, I don't think there's much point in me continuing my university education because I just have no interest. But they were sort of quite emphatic that I should complete my university education. Mm -hmm. And then they said, then you do whatever you like. You know, my parents were very also very, very open minded. They said, you do whatever you like with your life, but get a good education first and, Mm -hmm. and then decide. So that's why you decided going to the university in the first place? I went to university in the first place uh, because it was expected of me. And I didn't know what else to do. You know, it was just like it was Uh, the next step in the education process. And uh, when I finished high school, I was still quite young. I mean, we go to university. I think I just turned 17 when I went to university. And wow. really, it's not that old to be making really important decisions about what you want to study and yeah. what you want to do with your life. Yeah. And to be honest, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. So yeah, it was a bit I guess confusing that's, for me. 
Yeah, yeah, it's I, I guess that's a really classic thing that a lot of young people are bumping into. And that's why a lot of people go to university as well, because then it's still safe, because it's logical to follow that step. And after that, you're falling yes. in this gap in which you have to determine, like, what am I going to do now? Yeah, and it's a big question. And uh, there's a lot of pressure on, on us when we're young. Too much pressure, mm -hmm. I think. And yeah. it's sort of somehow we're supposed to know what we want to do with the rest of our life when we haven't even started our, our life. We've been in school yeah. all our life. Yeah, and it's a, exactly. It's a, it's a very, very difficult um, space to be in. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I always knew what I didn't want to do with my life. But I stayed at university, and I'm not sorry I did in some ways, but um, mm -hmm. I never practiced law, so I don't know. Okay. So what did you um, do after, after graduation? Oh, after graduation, uh, well, you see, uh, I just went traveling. Uh, okay. One year... Uh, we, in, in Australia, I don't know how it works in Europe, but in Australia, uh, we used to have, I think it's the same, over the summer vacation is a very long break at university. At school, not so much. But at university, I think it was a three or even a four-month break between semesters. Mm -hmm. So one year I went traveling. Uh, I traveled a little bit in Indonesia and Malaysia. Mm -hmm. When I came back from that, I had one year of university to complete my degree. Okay. But I just knew as soon as I finished my degree, I was going mm -hmm. traveling again for longer, for as long as necessary. Yeah. Because it's kind so, of addictive, right? The traveling oh, it's really thing. addictive. It's really yeah. addictive. And that's when I started to find uh, or, or to discover that, you know, there were other options and, mm -hmm. uh, and traveling was one of them. So... I mm -hmm. completed my university studies and um, then I just, I, I worked when I was at university because I lived in a student household with my girlfriend and mm -hmm. um, so I saved some money and, uh, and, and then when I uh, graduated, I just bought a one-way ticket and I said goodbye to my friends and my mm -hmm. family and I said, you know, I may not ever come back, but goodbye yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah yeah that's amazing so what happened then because at one point you felt drawn towards buddhism and you considered being a monk and then you actually became one so what happened what made you decide oh, no, that that's quite that's a, 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 a interesting story i suppose um you know i think looking back on my life at that time when i was at university and in many ways very confused and very lost and unsure of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, mm -hmm. I can look back on that now and, and, and say that uh, in a sense, I was experiencing like an existential crisis. Um, and if you like a, a, a spiritual crisis or a lack of, uh, a lack of meaning in my life. And mm -hmm. when I went traveling, I didn't think of myself as going on a spiritual search but again mm -hmm. in retrospect i can see that's exactly what i was doing but it's a it, it's a search um uh, when we go searching it's it's looking for oneself mm -hmm. you know trying to find out who am i what am i doing in this world what's the purpose of my life 
Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when we're young and what we want to do is we want to have fun and we want to, you know, go here and go there and do this and do that and experience life um, as much as we possibly can. And mm-hmm. within my own sort of means, I, I sort of did that, I guess. E- even before I went traveling, I had a really um, a lot of fun, if you like, growing up in mm-hmm. Australia. I had amazing yeah. uh, adventures. But um, traveling started off like that, just sort of going to good places, looking to have more fun. But I think over time, um, it's really hard to explain. I my, my travels were almost exclusively in Asia. Uh, I went to Thailand and Nepal and India and Sri Lanka, uh, mm-hmm. briefly to Europe, um, mm-hmm. but not really traveled around so much. Um, I think when I got to India in particular, I found something really changed in my way of relating to the world and and the way of relating to myself. India Mm -hmm. at the time, this was 1978, um, still Mm -hmm. is in many ways, but incredibly challenging and almost like going to another planet. You know, it was really Mm -hmm. extraordinary and Mm -hmm. um, very difficult, I have to say, initially, very, very difficult. In what way? just because it was so different. I yeah. mean, really, you know, you traveling in Indonesia and Thailand and, and Malaysia, it's different. But at mm-hmm. the same time, there's still this sense of connectedness to one's own roots. But India is like, it's like a, another, another reality altogether. In, in the time that I was in India, I really started to examine what I was doing with my life much more closely. And I realized I just wasn't interested in going to the next party place or having fun or, you know, having a, a entertaining myself anymore. I, I realized I wanted to sort of explore a little bit more deeply the meaning of life and so on and so forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, without going into details, one thing led to another and you meet people who tell you about this place or that place mm-hmm. or somebody gives you a book and you know it's you've probably had mm-hmm. similar experiences you yes. your mind yeah. starts to change in a certain way and you meet somebody who says something and it sends you off in a certain direction or you yeah. read a book and it like boom it something yeah. something opens in your mind and in your heart as well and it's almost as if there are these unseen forces guiding you on a certain yes. journey when you open up and start to to be receptive to that to that guidance mm-hmm. that's how i felt in india i used to i used to think oh mother india where she's going to send me next who's she going to what adventure is she going to give me yeah. next you know tomorrow sort of thing and it was a real sort of like a like being in a circus in a way it was really beautiful I really recognize and connect to that uh, way of perceiving the world in which it feels like things don't happen uh, as a coincidence, that there's a reason that at a specific time you're reading, like you're feeling drawn towards a book or you're having specific conversation with with people because at that time it feels like uh, the universe is kind of testing whether you're ready to open up your mind to more that the world has to offer. Precisely, precisely. You've articulated it very well. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, okay, and that's so- the realization I came to when I was traveling in India, that I'm not just here to have fun, but I'm here to learn something. 
Was in India the moment that you were first introduced to Buddhism? <laughs> um, not not formally. Um, my my travels in India. I think traveling in Asia in in general and India in particular. I I do remember one thing very clearly that um, what what uh, what to say impacted on my mind more strongly than anything else was the realization that. Almost wherever you go in Asia, whether it's uh, is Muslim Indonesia or Buddhist Thailand or Hindu India, religion really important to people's lives, and and I started to understand why it was so important in people's lives because it gave them um, a sense of connectedness, and it gave them a reference point. Reference to the point. way they relate to themselves, um, the world, and other people. Mm -hmm. I think once I came to the realization that religion was something really important for human beings, you know, just as sort of like an observer of my of other people on my travels, um, mm -hmm. it was, you know, pretty uh, pretty uh, what to say a, a short step to then. Um, draw the realization that religion was actually something really important to me. Mm -hmm. And so my travels in India and, and Asia and well, wherever, uh, through life, if you like, um, it's not like I woke up one day and said, oh, I want to become a Buddhist or I want mm -hmm. to become anything. Uh, to some extent, I've been quite anti-religion in, in some ways. I didn't want to identify um, in any particular way. But I did recognize that uh, and accept that at a certain point that I had a very deep spiritual yearning and I wanted to nourish that and uh, mm -hmm. cultivate that. So I think what I, uh, I learned in India or the conclusion I came to in India was something much more general. It was like, oh, I want to learn to meditate and I want to learn mm -hmm. about my mind like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. But if you're talking about uh, that that is what you wanted to uh, learn about um, mm. that's not connected to a specific religion so at that point when you thought about wanting to learn to meditate did you already know that there wasn't a specific religion you wanted to um, follow I guess you would no, say? No I think at that point once once I came to that realization then it became a question of well what path should I follow do you know what I mean? Where where should yes. I look for that um, that that practice and that development? And uh, I don't know. Again, sort of some interesting things unfolded. But basically, um, at about that time in my journey, uh, I ran out of money, so I came back to Australia. Mm -hmm. And then coming back to Australia after traveling and 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 you know, very very interesting experience. And I met an old friend from university and um, I was talking to her and I know she had been in um, India at some point. And I also knew that she was a Buddhist, although I didn't really know what that meant. But I expressed an interest in learning to meditate. And she told me um, about a Buddhist center in Melbourne, which is where I'm from. So yeah. I thought, well, I might as I'll go there and see what happens. 
So that turned out to be a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center, not far from where my parents uh, lived and where I was living after my travels. And uh, I remember very clearly when I walked into the meditation center and there was a quite a big picture of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama on the wall. You know, you've been in a Tibetan monastery, you know that we have pictures of His Holiness uh, um, in the meditation halls. And as soon as I saw that picture of His Holiness, it was some sort of really deep sense of recognition and familiarity. I sort of started to attend meditation sessions at that center and, um, uh, you know, teachings a little bit like what I, what I presented at Copan. You know, what you've, mm -hmm. you yourself have participated in at Copan Monastery. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of months later, um, a Tibetan Lama came uh, mm -hmm. and gave a seven-day intensive retreat. And I participated mm -hmm. in that retreat. And uh, during that seven, eight days, I can't remember, um, I had some very powerful dreams with the Lama who was teaching and that, mm -hmm. that was Lama Zopa, the, the abbot of Kopan Monastery, or the, or the, the mm -hmm. spiritual um, head of Kopan Monastery. Mm -hmm. And as a result of those dreams, I felt um, that he was my guru, my spiritual teacher. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of that course, you know, I'm still very new, but I've now been exposed to some of the Buddhist teachings. I also have to say, just as I had that very strong sense of um, recognition with His Holiness the Dalai Lama when I saw his picture, as soon mm -hmm. as I heard those preliminary teachings on Buddhism that you've also heard, you know, the, about suffering and the cause of suffering and karma mm -hmm. and reincarnation, for mm -hmm. me it was like a, you know, like a, uh, like a light going off and it was like the last pieces of a jigsaw puzzle falling into place and it's like oh my god i'm a buddhist and i've always been a buddhist like that so like i'm I, i'm a buddhist i just didn't realize i was a buddhist do you know what i mean because i'd done a lot of reading and i'd uh, i'd spoken to many different people and i had my own personal experiences and the and the teachings that i heard in especially in that uh, seven day retreat really sort of helped me build up the picture of who I was and where I was going and what I wanted to do with my life. And after mm -hmm. that, it was for me really clear, oh, I just want to go back to Nepal and India and, mm -hmm. and become a monk. Yeah, but for me, it was just yeah. like, there was, it was like crystal clear. There was nothing else I wanted to do other than to immerse myself um, in the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist culture and, uh, and, um, you know, learn as much as I could, uh, yeah. as quickly as I could. So you could say, um, really, that uh, I met the Buddhist teachings in Australia. And mm -hmm. I, I made the decision to become a monk in Australia. But I went back to Nepal um, in order to, what to say, uh, fulfill that aspiration. Yeah, yeah. And then... I worked for, in order to fulfill that aspiration, I worked for um, the rest of the year and saved as much money as I could. Mm -hmm. And uh, towards the end of the year, or was it, uh, yeah, towards the end of the year, I, um, I told my parents I'm going back to India and uh, I'm going to become mm -hmm. a Buddhist monk. 
and um, mm. goodbye. <laughs> and, and what did they say? How did they react? Oh, my mum started to cry. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Of course. And my father said, my father, very practical, he said, well, what does it mean to become a Buddhist monk? And I said, I have no idea, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all I want to do, like that. Uh -huh. And it's funny because it wasn't, it's almost as if, I didn't have a choice, you know, it was like mm -hmm. something that was like, this is what I have to do like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think if you speak to other um, Westerners who have become monks and nuns, for some of them, I can't say if it's the same for all, but for some of them, it's sort of similar. It's like you make this connection and it's sort of like crystal clear, you know, for maybe mm -hmm. even for the first time in your life, it's absolutely clear what you want mm. to do with your life and it's yeah. like what gives you energy you. yeah and and no yeah. power in the in the universe is going to stop you from doing that yeah it's really interesting like that yeah i also believe that uh, we need to live our lives in a way in which we follow what gives us energy unless it's like a psycho thing like killing people but if it gives you energy yeah. and it helps you like develop yourself and grow as a human being, then that is what your passion is. And you should follow your passion in order to that's find That's what happiness. a spiritual practice, yes, that's what a spiritual practice is, to listen to your heart and to, and to um, allow your own inner wisdom to grow. And that which inspires you and that which, in, um, what to say, uh, helps you become a better human being, more kind, more compassionate, more wise, that we should embrace as part of our path, part of our journey. And it's not yeah. always the same for every person. We've all got our own journey and our own karma, if you like, our own Definitely. experiences that we have to, have to go through. But the aspiration is usually the same, to better ourselves, to be the best that we can, um, not in a competitive materialistic sense, but in a, in a wholesome humanistic sense, you know, to become more kind and more compassionate and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So what you said before about um, being first introduced to different religions and that people are actually just aspiring to feel more connected. Could you say that before you got in touch with different religions and uh, Buddhism, that you felt very disconnected to the world around you and that it was oh, connectedness? Totally. Yeah. Okay. And I think that was the, um, you know, I, I spoke earlier about uh, at, from quite a young age experiencing what we call existential um, angst or existential anxiety, existential crisis. You know, what's the purpose of my life? Who am I? What am I doing here? I think at some stage, um, just about everybody goes through that experience. But I believe it's always a spiritual, um, you know, and it's the need for some sort of spiritual uh, nourishment that precipitates that that um, existential crisis or that existential longing, whatever we want to, to call it. Um, mm -hmm. So, again, when you're young and you're growing up, you know, basically it's all about having fun. Okay, and th and that's sort of good in a way. I mean, that's our world. That's mm -hmm. the culture that we live in. Is like we go to parties and we have relationships and we listen to music and we go to the mm -hmm. bar and you know we smoke and we drink and we play around and we we're, we're looking because we're looking for happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And and in our world, it's it's always outside of ourselves. 
that at a certain point, um, not again, not for everybody necessarily, but at a certain point, for those who have a strong spiritual calling, at a certain point that starts to feel a little bit repetitive and essenceless and superficial and, and, and even pointless. And so without nourishing the spiritual uh, side of our, our being, um, one can, I think, get really uh, quite depressed and feel quite hopeless and helpless because the world just doesn't have anything to offer anymore. Um, mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. seems so pointless. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I think my own feeling is that human beings, you know, whether people do it or not, that's an individual thing, but human beings are, are on one level. I think we have this, um, we are spiritual beings. You know, whether we accept mm -hmm. that or acknowledge it or act on it, that's a different story. But my, I believe that at our core, we are spiritual beings and that we mm -hmm. all need some way of connecting up with that inner divine spirit. You know, we can mm -hmm. call it Buddha or God or Allah. You, know, you can call it whatever you like. Um, but I think that's the main purpose of religions and spiritual practice to help us connect with our inner our inner goodness. In, in Buddhism, we mm -hmm. talk about our inner Buddha nature, like that. Mm -hmm. And I think until we make that connection and start to connect with the inner divine, then there's no way to connect with the outer divine. But mm -hmm. the more we're able to open up and accept and, and uh, nourish the inner qualities, so too, in a very interesting, synchronistic and reciprocal way, we develop a relationship with the external, I don't know, forces of goodness that, that pervade mm -hmm. the universe. That's the way I like to think of it. Um, and I think we all have that need on some level. And if we don't nourish that, then at a certain point, life becomes empty and meaningless and, um, mm -hmm. you know, so That's what do you think is the role of feeling connected towards um, the external world? I, I, I would say I could see the external world as um, situations, stuff, but also people. What do you think the role is to be able to connect to other people? Oh, I, I mean... As human beings, if we don't have a, a, a good connection with other people, we just die of loneliness and, and, and a lack of love. We need, this is, this is the, the most important thing. If we, we need to learn to open our hearts to others in a really authentic way um, and connect with others uh, in some really genuine, open-hearted way, because it's not something that, only we need, but other people need that as well. It's like we're human beings. If we don't relate to each other in that wholesome, loving, kind way and don't connect in that way, then again, it's like, a, it's like this seed of, of joy and happiness and goodness and, you know, love and kindness. It's a seed that never gets watered. And so it sort of withers and dies. And the loneliness and the... Um, anxiety and the alienation that so many people in this world experience it's all to all related to the inability to open our hearts and give and receive love from others mm -hmm. so engaging with others in a positive way 
is is uh, you know fundamental of fundamental importance. But mm-hmm. how do we do that? First, we have to engage with ourselves in an extremely you know good-hearted, loving, kind, authentic way. So developing ourselves in order to relate well to others, but not just to relate well to others, but to be able to what to say, have empathy for others and to help others in whatever way we can. We, we need help from others. Others need help from us. That's mm-hmm. that sense of connectedness. So yeah. important. So what you are saying is that um, with Buddhism, you're being taught how to meditate and how to look into yourself to find more compassion for other people. And that helps uh, with the connection to uh, other people, which makes us also feel more full ourselves, more whole. Oh, quite so, yes. That's right. Yeah. That's what we say. It's like the more yeah. kindness and the more love and the more compassion we're able to generate from within ourselves, the mm-hmm. more we're able to extend that to others. But mm-hmm. the benefit for ourselves is that the happier we become. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, everybody wants... We, we, it's almost like we are obsessed with being in love. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. such a such a massive part of the human psyche. And that transcends religion, race, culture. It's like it's a human thing, this idea of being in love like that. Mm-hmm. And people love mm-hmm. their partners and their parents and their children and their friends. Like, And it's that feeling of love that gives rise to so much joy and happiness. And it's that mm-hmm. absence of love that um, is is the source of all loneliness and unhappiness. So the yes. more we're able to love, the more happiness we experience, the more happiness we share with others. So um, Buddhists, uh, monks, are actually um, able to love of course as well. It, it really showed at the monastery how uh, loving and uh, kind everyone was, but at the same time, they are refraining themselves from having any sexual relationships with the partner. Um, mm-hmm. Why is that? Uh, it's an interesting question on, on some level, on, on many levels. Um, you're right about Kopan. Uh, uh, and something that I've always felt, and one of the reasons I love going back there, when you see the monks, the way they engage with each other, there really is this sense of kindness and uh, concern for each other, okay? Mm -hmm. And I've seen it uh, again and again, there's a softness and a gentleness um, about the way they relate to each other. And of course, because they grow up in in an environment which, you know, all of the time reinforces the importance of kindness and compassion and respect for others. On the other hand, we shouldn't project too much. Monks in a monastery, they're also human beings and they have their difficulties and their problems and because that's the human world. But generally speaking, you're right. And I think countless people who have visited Kopan and probably other Buddhist monasteries as well have been deeply touched by the uh, the joyful energy of the environment that comes from this fundamental kindness that they they try most of the time successfully to, to um, show each other. Um, 
as I said, they're also human beings. Lots of lots of Buddhist monks stop being Buddhist monks and get married and have families. But what's very interesting in the in in the Tibetan culture and the Nepali Buddhist culture that I've seen, even if somebody's been a monk, say at Kopan, most of their life, and this has happened a lot, you know, they become young men, 20, 21, 22, 23. For whatever reason, they leave the monastery. Maybe they get married and have family. Maybe they fall in love or they just don't want to be monks anymore or their parents pressure them into leaving the monastery to get a job in the world and support the family. Even when they come back to the monastery as non-monks, right, they're still part of the family. You know, I mean, it's not like, oh, you're not a monk anymore and they cut them off. They somehow betrayed the monastic institution. It's not like that. This is where they grew up. All of these monks, they're, they're like their brothers. It's, it's like their family. And they stay like that rest of their lives. And it's really beautiful. Even they go yeah. to America or Australia. Whenever they come back to Nepal, they come back to the monastery to see their friends. And they're always welcomed as, you know, one of their friends. And it's really beautiful yeah. like that. Yeah, but at the um, same time, it's kind of the essence of the Buddhism as, Buddhist, uh, yeah, Buddhism as well. Because if the whole point is compassion... Exactly. You need exactly. to have it also for the people who choose not to be a monk anymore. Yeah. And also, I think something, you know, that I've learned and which in, in a way is sort of obvious and in some ways not so obvious, whether one is a good Buddhist or not, or even a strongly practicing Buddhist, actually has nothing to do with whether one is a monk or a nun or a lay person. Mm -hmm. It's an inner, um, it, it's what we're doing with our minds. And some, you know, I, I don't, I'm not deliberately trying to be provocative or critical, but some people in robes, they're almost not even Buddhists, you know, the way they behave. Mm -hmm. But many lay practitioners are incredibly sincere um, spiritual practitioners and much further along the path than some of the monks and nuns. Do you know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it's not like you have to become a monk or a nun in order to develop spiritually. Mm -hmm. But it is a very powerful way to um, work with the mind. And I think yeah. this question of, um, of celibacy and, and why monks and nuns don't have sexual relationships is primarily, I think, because engagement with the world and especially engagement with the sensory world so sex and drugs and rock and roll and, you know, mm -hmm. too many movies and TV, external stimulation, those sort of activities that um, we as ordinary people just do because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. um, they can actually make the mind more distracted and can mm -hmm. really sort of uh, make it difficult to meditate and go deep into um, a, a, a practice. If you're in a monastic environment, it's very pure. And uh, the way you relate to people is um, with love and kindness, but not with attachment and not with sexual desire. So it's a, in some ways, it's a more wholesome way of relating to people. But, um, you know, like that. Yeah, it's yeah. Quite, quite so, a big subject, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. So how, was, how did you experience your first year in a monastery living as a monk? <laughs> um, I had a I, sort of interesting yeah I, I came back to as I said I, I made the determination in Australia to um, 
to uh, uh, become a monk. And then I went back to Nepal and I lived at Copan for a year and mm. I helped in the office uh, mm. at Copan and in, in other ways as well. And at the end of that year, um, I became a monk. Uh, and Lama Yeshi sent me to Nalanda Monastery in France, uh, near okay. Toulouse in the south of France, which had just started. And um, so I stayed there for three and a half years and uh, mm -hmm. studied there. And uh, I suppose in many ways, much of what I'm almost all of what I know about Buddhism comes from those early years of studying um, at the monastery. But in terms of my personal experience, <laughs> it's sort of strange in a way, looking back on it. I had a very difficult time when I became first became a monk. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose probably fair to say I was a little bit crazy at the time for various mm -hmm. reasons. I, mm -hmm. My mind, uh, <laughs> it's again, like, it's, it's quite... It's like rehab. Quite, Right. Well, basically, um, when I went back to Copan after, you know, first getting involved with the Dharma here in Australia, when I went back, when I went to Nepal and went to Copan Monastery, Lama Yeshi told me to do some practices. And I guess because I didn't have that much faith or I got distracted or I got caught up in other things, I didn't do those practices. And I subsequently I understand that he gave me those practices to purify certain karma and I didn't do those practices and uh, because I didn't do those practices I actually started to experience some mental problems mm -hmm. and so I became really quite confused and really um, disorientated for a while and it is a very, very long story, and I won't go into the details, but mm -hmm. in the midst of that confusion, um, I actually became a monk, which is probably the worst possible time to become a monk. And mm -hmm. in some ways, becoming a monk only increased my confusion. Uh, I guess you could say, I mean, speaking in Buddhist terms, some karma ripened, okay? Some karma mm -hmm. manifested that caused me some mental problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, for a couple of years, I was quite mentally uh, unhealthy and mentally unstable. But then okay. gradually, um, you know, that changed and, uh, you know, uh, things started to settle down. And mm -hmm. uh, so my initial years as a monk were quite turbulent, I suppose. That's probably the best way of putting it. Very turbulent mm -hmm. and very uncomfortable. And it wasn't until... I'd been a monk for quite a few years that I really started to feel, you know, good about it. It was sort of difficult because I knew it's what I wanted to do. And it's new. It's almost like I knew it's what I had to do, but I probably just became a monk a little bit too soon, if you, to the truth be known. I should have waited a mm -hmm. few years and studied more and had more familiarity with what it means to be a Buddhist in the Tibetan tradition and, and in particular, what it means to be a monk, you know, but, mm -hmm. you know, young. So could you be a monk at any time or was it, um, did you have to have like an intake with someone at the monastery who would talk with you about whether you were you, ready for you it? Need, you need a, a Lama's permission. Um, okay. and uh, at, at this time uh, there were some other people becoming monks and nuns and I asked Lama Yeshi if I could also become a monk and he said yes okay 
like that. Mm-hmm. All right. Sounds like a tough first year then. <laughs> Did uh, you consider uh, quitting? Again, yeah, it was. The first few years were very tough, actually. Um, very, very tough. Yeah. Because it's strange, you know. I mean, I grew up in Australia, just a normal middle-class Australian boy, you know, and I mm-hmm. went traveling in Asia and I probably took far too many drugs, you know. I took a lot of magic mm-hmm. mushrooms and smoked a lot of ganja, and, uh, <laughs> as we do when we're young. And, yeah. you know, I don't think that was particularly good for my mind. At the time, you yeah. think it's good for the mind. But uh, in retrospect, I think not very healthy at all. And then sort of India, Nepal and Asia generally, you know, you can get into a different or interesting sort of um, headspace and then meeting mm-hmm. Buddhism and becoming a monk is sort of like the opposite of the way I'd been brought up. Mm-hmm. And Buddhism itself is like uh, almost the opposite of the way we think and behave in, in the Western mm-hmm. world. Definitely. Um, so there's a lot of different, what to say, forces at work. Um, but anyway, one way or the other, I survived. So it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was there a specific point in which uh, it became easier to live as a monk? Did there switch something in your mind or did you experience something that made it all easier? Um no, not, not, not one particular, just a gradual, um, what to say, uh, familiarity with what it means to be a monk and to behave as a monk and like that. Uh, for me, living in India was always a very important part of my journey. And even if I hadn't become a monk, um, I would have wanted to go back and live in India. So after I'd been at the monastery in France for three and a half years, I left Mm -hmm. and I went back to India and um, this time as a monk. And I was at our meditation center in Dharamsala. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's when Lama Zopa said to me one day, it would be good if you start to teach a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I was still very young. I was 26 or 27. Oh, wow. I think. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. I Sorry. I was 26 when I became a monk. So I would have been okay. closer to 30. But, you know, young in the sense of not really, uh, hadn't been a monk for that long, I think three or four years. And um, mm-hmm. I said to him, well, I don't really know much about Buddhism, you know, when you think about mm-hmm. it. It's not like I've mm-hmm. studied for 20 years, like many of the lamas. And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, teach what you know with sincerity and you will benefit many people. And mm-hmm. so I thought, well, that's true enough. And, and another yeah. lama said, don't teach something that you don't understand. Only teach those things that you know well. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. And if somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, you tell them, I'm sorry, I don't know that one. You have to ask yeah. somebody who knows more than me. And so I started teaching. And I think once I started teaching, that really also helped center me in my life as a monk. And I I realized every time I I taught, I learned as much as the students. Um, And -hmm. when you have to teach, you have to really think about what you've learned in the past. And you have to really, you know, lay it out clearly in your mind. 
So that was incredibly beneficial for me, I, I have to say that. And so for some years, I, I stayed in India and Nepal, going back and forth teaching uh, in Dharamsala and at Kopan Monastery as well. Like that. Mm -hmm. So I think in those years, I really started to, you know, appreciate and, and really uh, integrate monasticism into my life. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, if I understand correctly, you went to uh, the Kopan Monastery and you were there for a year. And then you went three and a half years to France, and then you went to India, and in India you started teaching as well. Uh, what right. was the point in which you become a monk? Was that in France then, or was that in Nepal? Uh, that was in Nepal. That was in Nepal. Uh, and, okay. And after I became yeah. a monk, after I became a monk, um, Lama Yeshi's advice was go to the monastery in uh, in France and study there. Okay. Okay. And what? Would you say you like most about the Buddhist philosophy? Oh, I think the thing that touched me most deeply when I first heard Buddhist teachings was the emphasis on kindness and compassion. Um, because I'm actually a very, quite a, a very sensitive person, and I've always thought of myself. Um, as a kind person, or at least I've always tried to be a kind person. Mm -hmm. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama was, you know, he, he says, oh, my religion is kindness. So when you mm -hmm. have a Lama saying something like that, it sort of resonates very, very deeply. And it's sort of like, oh, this is, this is something that really touches my heart like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's probably what impacted on me um, most forcefully in the beginning. Um, but then as you learn about the other aspects of the Buddhist teachings, uh, you know, the past lives and future lives and karma and the different realms of existence. And I started to think, wow, Buddhism is like some incredible science fiction story, you know? Mm -hmm. And even in, in teachings that I've given over the years, I've often said to people, oh, Buddhism is, a, is like... Um, it's a mixture of Lord of the Rings and Alice in Wonderland, and Star Trek, and Star Wars. <laughs> put all of these things together, and it begins to, you know, it, it almost, you know, as amazing as Buddhism itself. <laughs> mm. Wow, that's amazing! Um, so this it, description. It, it's hard to because there's this incredible. The other thing about Buddhism, and and this is sort of going back a little bit. Um, Strangely enough, I've always believed in magic. Mm -hmm. Not that I. So, I, how know, would not, you not, define magic then? Well, yeah, this is what we have. This is this <laughs> is sort of, I mean, some something sort of mystical and magical about the universe. Okay, I'm not talking about magic tricks that people uh -huh. do to entertain. <laughs> I've always felt there was something really mysterious and and magical about. Um, the world and the universe. So I sort of mentioned Alice in Wonderland, for example. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that story yes, of the famous thing. Um, that, that whole idea of other realities and, and the world not being the way we think it is. And I don't know, it's, it's really hard to articulate. Mm -hmm. But I have to say Buddhism, uh, in particular, I think the Tibetan tradition, I can't speak for other Buddhist traditions so much, but... Um, 
because I'm not that familiar, but certainly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there really is this sort of um, magical aspect to the way the lamas relate to the world and the way they behave, the way they um, guide their students. And in terms of one's personal experience, I think it's fair to say that the, there's a sort of the mysteries of the universe do start to unfold and uh, in some cases yeah. to be understood as well. Yeah. So on a non, what to say, conceptual philosophical level, um, mm -hmm. that aspect of the Buddhist teachings, that, that, mystic, that mystical side of Buddhism really touched me very, very deeply. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, I, I think that, that. that um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to say about that, but that was yeah. really, because on the one level, you've got the Buddhist philosophy, compassion yeah. and wisdom and karma and rebirth and so on and so forth but on mm -hmm. a deeper level it's 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 not something that you can really put into words it's a it's a mm -hmm. it's a connection with something really deep and something mm -hmm. really extraordinarily profound and i use the word mystical but of course that can mean different things to different people mm -hmm. so um you were a monk for 35 years correct 30 years. 30 years. Okay. 30 and years. during those years, you've been traveling between Nepal and India, mainly for teachings, for gi uh, giving people. Well, I spent a lot of time in India and Nepal. Um, but then at a, uh, at a certain point, I came back to Australia um, on Lama Zopa's advice. And uh, I was involved with a monastery uh, outside of Melbourne, where I live. In fact, I've just come from there earlier today. Um, and I lived at that monastery on and off for some years. Um, later on, some years later, I, I was even the uh, director of that monastery for several years. Um, mm -hmm. Even then, when I was at the monastery in Australia, I... Um, also traveled a little bit and I spent a couple of years at a Buddhist meditation center um, in Sydney teaching there. Uh, okay. So I've been around and here and there. Uh, yeah. I spent a lot of time, I should, sorry to, to in, what to say, interject, but um, monasticism for me, uh, to be honest, I never really liked institutionalized monasticism. What is never monasticism? Uh, you know, when I became a monk, uh -huh. it's, uh, we think of monks living in a monastery, right? Yeah. Well, I never actually enjoyed living in a monastery that much. I don't okay. like living with other people. And uh, uh, okay. my idea of a monkhood, and this is also very much a part of the Buddhist monk culture, was just to live on my own and go wherever I like and live wherever I like and just meditate and practice. And so I spent a lot of time um, in different parts of Australia, but also in different parts of India in particular, um, just not in monasteries, you know, not in Buddhist mm -hmm. monasteries, but or sometimes in mo Buddhist monasteries from other traditions, Burmese monasteries and so forth like that. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I just go to uh, Indian, holy Indian places, ashrams or sacred parts of India and just mm -hmm. live there. And yeah. I mean, one year I lived on the banks of the Ganges River for a while. And, you know, I mean, I had a little room there. I didn't say I 
camping on the banks of the river, but mm. that sort of thing, just being more like a wandering mendicant rather yeah. than a monk in a monastery, if you know what I mean. That's what I mean by yeah. institutionalized like that. Yeah. So, so would you say that is the main reason for you to quit being a monk? Oh, why did I stop being a monk? I think it, it, it's connected in the sense that um, at a certain point, I just felt being a monk, being in the robes was somehow, well, I don't know oh, how to explain this. I was spending more and more time in Australia, mm-hmm. okay, and I didn't want to live in the monastery. Mm-hmm. When you live in the monastery, the monastery here in Australia, okay, because we have one here. When you live in a monastery, you're with other monks and you're wearing the same clothes and you think, you know, you've got the same worldview. Mm-hmm. So it's familiar. And to some extent, it's comfortable. You don't feel like you're particularly strange. When you step outside of the monastery, mm-hmm. okay, not so much in India and Nepal, because being different is part of that world, okay? Mm-hmm. But in Australia, you step outside of the monastery into the ordinary world, and you're a freak, you know? You're wearing mm-hmm. a red dress, and you're wearing these strange clothes from another culture and another religion, mm-hmm. And you're very, very visible. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, it's very strange. You don't feel comfortable. I didn't feel Mm -hmm. comfortable. So, Mm -hmm. again, long story. There's always a background story to every Mm -hmm. stage of one's journey. But Mm -hmm. at a certain point, I, I came to the conclusion that either I should go back to the monastery and live there as a monk or Mm -hmm. better to stop being a monk and just Mm -hmm. live as an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it a lot. It's not something that happened overnight. And um, Mm -hmm. I didn't stop being a monk because I met somebody and fell in love and wanted to have a relationship or anything like that. It was Mm -hmm. more just a sense of, unless I'm going to live in the monastery, being in robes just doesn't make sense anymore. And I felt that I could probably continue and even develop my practice just as well if Mm -hmm. I was an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. And um, at a certain point, uh, it's not an easy decision, but at a certain point I felt, oh, I think I'll stop being a monk. I'll be a lay Mm -hmm. person, ordinary person now. And I have Mm -hmm. to say, really comfortable to be invisible and Mm -hmm. to be able to go outside just in shorts and a t-shirt like other Australian people and, mm-hmm. and not be really visible and not be you know perceived as being anything other than a that's right not having to carry the label not having mm-hmm. to carry the projections of other people but even more importantly I think on one level as a monk one has very sometimes unreasonable expectation of one's self as well mm-hmm. And it's like somehow when I stopped being a monk, I felt I could just be a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more natural and a little Mm. bit more authentic like that. And so far, it's actually worked out very well. I'm actually very happy as a a lay person. Um, Mm. Maybe I'll become a monk again later um, Mm. because it's also a beautiful way to live. But I don't, for those 30 years, I think I needed to be a monk in order Mm -hmm. to 
grow. To and be I where you are now. A, yeah, to be where I'm at now. And I just reached a point where it's mm-hmm. like, I don't need to be a monk. I can be a monk if I want to, but I don't need to be a monk anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, there's been a lot to learn uh, since since I stopped being a monk as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any other values that you let go of after quitting to be a monk? Not really. Uh, actually, it was very, very interesting um, because I think Buddhist values, you know, uh, a certain one tries to maintain a certain morality. You know, we have the five precepts, no killing, stealing, lying, intoxicant, sexual misconduct, for example. Um, I think they become so deeply ingrained that there's no... You know, it's not like I, I'm not a monk anymore, so I can go out and get drunk or start, you know, uh, I can take magic mushrooms again or something like I never had that sort of, I've never done that sort of thing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, not much, it's like not much changed internally. And and very mm-hmm. interestingly, When I told, I sent a, an email to Lama Zopa and I told him, oh, I'm, I'm not a monk anymore. Um, and I, I was discussing with him what, what's a good thing to do now uh, in terms of good place to go and practice. And his advice was to go back to Nepal. Mm-hmm. So a couple of months after I stopped being a monk, I found myself back at Kopan Monastery. Mm-hmm. This time as a lay person for the first time in 30 years. And... Mm-hmm. Um, Because I used to teach there when I was a monk, okay, I, I know the people there, and uh, they needed their, uh, at the time, Karen, whom you know, the Swedish nun, she was going on an extended um, holiday, and they needed somebody to teach while she was away. So they asked mm-hmm. if I would stay and teach. Mm-hmm. So I did. And um, it's very interesting. The first time I went to the class and started teaching as a lay person, right? Not in robes, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, not as a monk, but just as an ordinary person. I have this really strong feeling that oh, I've done the right thing. You know, it's really strong because I just yeah. felt so comfortable talking to people, not as a monk, but just as an ordinary person. And I mm-hmm. felt I could express myself um, more authentically and more, more genuinely. Um, mm-hmm. And I had this, oh, really, I made the right decision. You know, it just mm-hmm. feels so nice to mm-hmm. teach Dharma, but without the formality of being a monk. Yeah. As a monk, it's a little bit like you're up here and other people are down here. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just the way the, the structure of the, of the religious tradition is. But teaching as a lay, per, an ordinary person, it's a little bit like just talking to people mm-hmm. like they're my friend. You know, not, do you I don't mean, mean that this? in an arrogant, condescending way, but yeah. as a monk, you're in robes and you're sitting on a throne and, you know, there's this whole sort of aura and a formality about monasticism. Yeah. Take that yeah. away and you're just an ordinary person. So it seems to be much more equal the way mm-hmm. you are communicating with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you s- sound very happy with your decision and you just said that it was confirmed that at the moment that you were teaching as an ordinary man in your uh, clothes that you feel comfortable in um so that's very good to hear um what is 
most important for you to keep that happiness for yourself? Did you find that out? What what you need to maintain in order to stay happy? Oh, my meditation practice. It, it's my meditation that sustains me um, in my spiritual life and in my daily life and in my mm -hmm. capacity to teach and communicate with others. And I, and I like teaching and I like communicating with others and I like other sentient beings, but I also love solitude. And I spend a lot of time, you know, in silence and solitude. And uh, I'm still, a, 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 you know, I still think of my main practice as being meditation. And um, I spend almost every, all day, every day in silence and solitude. Not, not completely. I mean, you know, of course not. And so in that sense, my life is not that much different from when I was a monk. Mm -hmm. It's just that I'm not, I don't have the formalities of monasticism, of monkhood anymore. I don't wear the robes. I don't have the um, monastic vows. Uh, I don't have the label monk. But the way my life, uh, not entirely, in, in some ways my life is very different, but um, in some ways not much has changed. Um, and of course, whether we're happy or unhappy, uh, as I said earlier, much earlier, is not much to do with whether we're a monk or not. It's what we're doing with our mind. And uh, I find that as long as I'm able to meditate a lot and keep the mind calm and centered and clear, um, that's where I get my joy. That's that, yeah. that, that that's where I get my happiness from within, like that. Mm -hmm. And the more peaceful the mind becomes, the more happy, happy one becomes. Yeah. I hope this episode challenged your mind, and I'd love to hear what you think about this philosophy. If you'd like to, you can visit my website, www.thetrueconnection.com. Here you find many more articles and podcast episodes focused on self-development. Did you like this episode? Don't forget to follow this podcast. Thank you for listening to Philosophy Explained and hopefully until next time.